It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here, and it's very topical. We're kind of going to change up uh, what we normally do. This is, would normally be a Q&A show, but given the big hack that happened to Matt Honan, the writer for uh, Wired Magazine, or Wired.com uh, this week, Steve's going to talk about the hack, how it happened, and most importantly, what lessons we have learned. Matt Honan's very bad weekend. We'll talk about it next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 364, recorded August 8, 2012. Matt Honan's Very Bad Weekend. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit gotoassist.com and use the promo code SECURITY. And by audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, and your privacy whenever you're online or off here. Well, we can't, we can't protect you from some things. We do our and best. anywhere in between. <laughs> anywhere in between. Our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson, is here. The uh, man at GRC.com, creator of SpinRight, world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and lots of free utilities. And we, we've been doing this show now. This is uh, episode... 364, uh, which means normally, nominally, it would be a Q&A episode. Not so this time. Well, yes, we had one set up for this week. Yet, um, what happened was, late last week on Friday, um, something happened to a well-known industry technology reporter, uh, Matt Honan, um, involving essentially he described it as the end of his digital life they i mean a complete hacking of his digital life um you had him on your main twit podcast on sunday um which i watched um and then he wrote about this in greater detail the following day monday of this week so and and what we have thanks to Matt's having untangled this and him having conversations with various involved parties, including the guys who hacked him, we believe, um, is now an understanding of how this was done. And I can't think of anything more on point yeah. for this podcast than than us taking a close look at this. And then once we understand it, we'll discuss, Leo, how it happened for, sort of from a meta level and what use you know what what our takeaways are what if anything we can do and sort of the state of the industry's security 
So we'll catch up with news stuff. And then I want to share what Matt wrote on Monday um, and then take our listeners through sort of a forensic timeline that I've assembled from that because what Matt shares is a little bit out of sequence and it's great for drama, but it's a, it leaves us a little not quite understanding how it happens. Which I, So I put it all together and then we'll talk about what it means. I would also be very interested in, uh, yeah, in talking about what we do in response because – uh, it certainly made me completely rethink what I uh, thought was a secure setup and change some things. And so I'd love yes. to get your advice on that. What, what, one of the things we're going to see, and this, it, again, I, you, we, couldn't, we couldn't invent a, a more compelling scenario than what actually happened last Friday to this no. nice, well-meaning person. Yeah. Um, you know, who's, 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 as a consequence... All the photos he ever took of his newborn daughter are hanging yeah. in the balance. Well, there's but, good there's good news, I think, on that. Uh, um, good. I think the forensics that Apple was able to do, the good news is that the uh, overwrite hadn't uh, happened yet. So uh, I've hooked him up with uh, friends of mine in the in the drive uh, data recovery business up at Drive Savers, and I hope that he will get his pictures back. But I don't want to. But that's the end of the story. We're going to go back and <laughs> go back in time to Friday in just a little bit. Also, I know you have some things to talk about, including Mars and yes. sci-fi and more. But first, let me just uh, quickly uh, just stick in a little mention of one of our favorite sponsors, the folks at Citrix, who do uh, a, a tool that anybody in IT is is absolutely going to want to know about. You probably already know about it. It is the number one remote support solution in the world. It's called GoToAssist. Yeah, you know that, right? We talked about it for a long time. Go to assist.com if you want to find out more. But there's a new feature to go to assist. So go to assist for years has been number one in remote access. That means you can use it to fix a computer on your client's uh, system remotely. Even when they're not there, you can do eight sessions at once. You can do it from an iPad. No, I mean, this is just really great stuff. Works Mac or PC, completely cross-platform. It has always been the tool for remote support. But now... They've added something very interesting, and I think this makes this a complete tool if you're in IT. And if you're interested in uh, you know, doing managed services, even more important. This is the go-to. So you've heard about GoToAssist remote support. Now GoToAssist monitoring, a new module, ah, and it's so cool. So here's what happens. You'll, you'll go to your client's network. Russell Tammany, our IT guy, did this on our network. He runs the crawler across our network, and it does a complete inventory of everything on the network, network-attached devices, computers, even the software that's running or installed on those computers. So you got all the applications, all the devices. Then you set up a custom dashboard. Now, they have some pre-canned stuff, a lot of the stuff people do all the time, things like monitoring server performance, network performance, hard drive uh, capacity, even things like toner cartridges. You set your own thresholds, and then you get notifications when there's uh, trouble uh, coming on the horizon via IM, SMS, email. This is so cool because this way you're proactive. You could fix a problem before it becomes a bigger problem, and you look like a support hero. You look like you're um, you know, pr- prescient. Wow. <laughs> he fixed it before. <laughs> My hard drive was running low, and I didn't even know it. He knew it. She knew it. 
That's thanks to GoToAssist. And then you use the remote support to fix stuff. I mean, this is just really slick. So uh, I'm sure you could think of about a dozen ways you could apply this in your business as an IT manager, as a managed service provider, as an IT consultant, as a software support guy. Just tons of uses for this. But here's the deal. Try it right now for free for 30 days. I want you to visit GoToAssist.com. Click the blue Try It Free button. You can try both modules free for 30 days. All you have to do is use our offer code. It's the promo code right here. Security now. One word. That's it. 30 days free. I really think you ought to try this. If you're in support of any kind, this is something that would just be such an asset. Go to assist.com and the promo code on this says security on the screen. says security. Yeah, it is just security. I'm sorry. I said it wrong. I should read my own copy. Security is all you need. Go to assist.com. Promo code security. I think you're uh, going to like this. Try it today. All right. Before we get to the Honen hack, as it is becoming <laughs> becoming known as, uh, is there any other security news? Well, the most interesting kerfuffle is uh, Ed Bott and a number of other people reported this. I, I mentioned Ed because he was also on Twitter yeah, on Sunday. Love Ed. A great old timer in our yep. industry who you and I have known forever. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that Microsoft has announced that indeed IE version 10, the next version of Internet Explorer, uh, which will run on Windows 7 um, and presumably 8, um, will in fact have do not track enabled by default. Oh, so yeah. this, they went back and forth on this. They have. Well, because there is such pressure against having this done coming from the, the as, as Ed described it, the tracking industry. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. I thought, oh, that's the tracking industry. Mm. Um, you know, there is a working group at the uh, W3C that are putting together the, the, the specs for the do not track header. And as we know, it's an optional request header, meaning that it would it's metadata, not part of the the URL. It's additional stuff that the browser sends to the server for every request for pages and GIFs and JPEGs and images and scripts and everything. And so every would every request would be embellished with this little statement saying that this user wishes not to be tracked, wishes, you know, not to have this query tied into other queries, not to have cookies linked and, and all the tricks that are used. And so, so we're aware now that, that many browsers, if not, I think it's we're at all browsers at this point, can have this optionally, but normally it's disabled. Microsoft is the first, and, and I'm delighted because, as we know, I, I, I coined the term years ago, the tyranny of the default, um, which was sort of the, the, the expression I like to use for we know that most users don't go in and change things. They just assume that someone smarter than them chose the settings that are best for them, and so they just say yes a lot when they're asked questions. So... What that means is that if it's enabled by default, it'll tend to stay on, which the tracking industry doesn't 
want to have happen. In fact, they're pushing the spec to state that browsers will have it disabled by default. So then they can claim that Internet Explorer is not obeying the standards and can use that as their basis for ignoring the header. So we have a little ways to go. Yeah. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, this is we're on the right track. What Microsoft has said is that they will have their their express setup for IE10 will enable it by default and make it clear that this is that do not track that tracking is that that request not to be tracked is enabled and that'll be part of the express setup if you use the custom setup you'll be taken through a a more of a Q&A you know like do you want this do you want that do you want you know what what do you want for your default search you know do you want to disable the, you do want to request not to have tracking and and even there i would imagine most people are going to say yeah i'd rather not be tracked so um this is you know this is this is a big event for the industry because Microsoft, even though most of us are no longer using IE, those of us you know within earshot of this podcast are probably on Chrome or Firefox um, w- with various you still know, a huge of number our, of people. Um, be, you know. The majority, yeah. I mean, it's still got it's still the majority still the platform. One. Yeah. Yes. So um, so what they do matter, and it does pave the way for other browsers that have have added the header but not yet taken the leap to enable it by default, it it paves the way for them to do that. So um that was this week's, you know, biggest news um uh over on the on the security and privacy front. Um the other big news uh I got a kick out of as I'm sure you did. In fact I guess Tom was up uh and broadcasting as Curiosity <sighs> was making its phenomenal multi-phase, can you even believe they pulled it off landing? <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Oh I, I had, and I think a lot of geeks did, because I saw pictures on Instagram and stuff, many screens open. I had our live coverage. I had NASA. I had CNN, just to see what CNN was doing on the television. Uh, and uh, CNN's shameful coverage was just ridiculously stupid. Uh, oh. NASA was great, and I, we had some great interviews, and we had... Uh, Phil Platt, the bad astronomer. We had Bill Sell, the guy in charge of the crane. We had uh, Dr. Kiki and, of course, Tom Merritt. So I was really proud of it. But you know what shocked me is how little attention this got. I, I, I'm i with shocked. you completely. The next morning I wanted I, – I specifically, you know, fired up a browser to to look for news. And it was – there was like other stuff happening. I mean it did collide with the Olympics and that's been a, a major passion for people for the last week and a half. But still – Yeah, well, uh, that happens every four years. This has never happened! <laughs> <laughs> well, well long-time <laughs> listeners of this podcast will remember that I have always – kept us aware of those cute little rovers spirit and opportunity you know they would you know some dust storm would come up and cover their their solar panels in red martian dust and then they would power themselves you know they would wind down as their batteries discharged and and jpl the Jet Propulsion Lab would think, well, okay, that's probably it. You know, it started in the beginning of 04, and these little suckers just kept going. I mean, they were the Energizer bunnies of Mars. 
And and then a wind would, you know, come up a few months later, blow the red dust off of of the solar panels. They would charge themselves back up and, you know, ping yeah. JPL. And it's like, oh, they're back. <laughs> and off they would go again. So who knows how long Curiosity is going to be uh, driving around the surface. But uh, with any luck, we'll have many years of keeping tabs on it. So as I as I see things, I would love... Are, are people who are in Twitter to make sure that I know what's going on and I'll, I'll pass that news on to our listeners because it was awful. Oh, it was so fun to, to watch those two cute little guys, you know, who just, just kept on going year after year after year. Well, and now those were now. little guys. This is, a, this is a science lab. I mean, this is a significant... This is an SUV. We yeah. dropped an SUV on Mars. Yeah, I mean, it's got mass spectrometers. It's got 3D stereoscopic camera. I mean, this thing... And it, oh. I mean, just the pictures we're already getting back are amazing, and I just can't wait to see what we discover. And it is it is a return in some ways, I think, to uh, space flight. Uh, this is uh, people. The debate, of course, goes on and on about manned versus uh, unmanned missions, and you could do so much with unmanned missions, and it's so much safer and less expensive. But I do think the reason there was less attention is because there was no human aboard. Had there been a human, of course, the world would have been mesmerized. Yeah. And that's why you put humans on these things. I don't know if it's a good enough reason, but that is why you do it. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've I've watched our general sort of lack of interest and, you know, people have like wondered why why isn't this generating the mm-hmm. same sort of attention that our original space exploration was. Right. And one of the things that I that has occurred to me is that well, we don't have photon torpedoes. We don't have, <laughs> you know, we, this, these are boring compared to the stuff uh, that, that we now, you know, like. The, For Christ's like, sake, we hung a crane in the air <laughs> and lowered the thing. It was about the coolest thing I've ever oh, seen. I agree. I mean, this really did happen. It, this this was, was just, almost photon torpedo quality. I'm telling you. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. I do think it's, that what I did see was. That there was a bifurcation that normal people didn't even know about it, but everybody yeah. who watches Twit, I was in there with the community. There were a thousand people in the chat room. We had more people watching that space coverage late at night than watched Twit earlier in the evening. Um, I'm convinced that the geeks, the internet, the people who are into this stuff, were very much aware of it. Well, and uh, and, and that's why we're going to do more of that kind of stuff here on Twit. I think this is our if, job. If Gene Roddenberry had written. This landing sequence, oh, and it was in one of the Star Trek episodes. We would have thought, "Oh, come on, yeah. you know, you can't ever do." I that. thought, "Oh, come on, <laughs> there's no way." Oh, and this this was real, and they course. couldn't test it. It was too bizarre to even test. They just had to do it, and they did it. And brilliant. Well, speaking speaking of cars driving around Mars, we have cars driving around Nevada. Uh, Nevada granted Google a license. For its driverless cars to drive on public streets. And and the news came out that Google has passed 300,000 accident-free miles. And I saw something that, that I, I just didn't have time to drill down, but maybe you know more about this, where they said they were going to start allowing the cars to drive their employees to work. <laughs> I didn't see that, but that's great. Before long. so <laughs> Well, it's legal in California. Or at least they've been doing it in California for some time, and I know that on th- public streets. Uh, oh yeah, whoa! 
Oh, yeah, for years. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know if it is legal. I think that uh, what they do is the guy's hovering his hands over the wheel or something. Yes. I don't know how they're getting away with it. Very, very nervous <laughs> co-pilots. The state, the state of California, <laughs> along with the state of Nevada, and several other states in the union are passing these laws that will make this legal. I think this is very exciting. Uh, Notice, I- by the way, they said 300,000 accident-free miles, but they said 300,000 miles free of accidents co- while under autonomous control. The cars did have some fender benders while the guy was driving. <laughs> it was the autonomous control that was safe. It's very Hal funny. just says, Dave, step, you know, Please, let go of let the me, wheel. I've me, got Dave. this. I'm sorry, yeah. Dave. Take your hands <laughs> off the wheel, Dave. So on my stair climber, I am reading Kill Decision, which is Daniel Suarez's third book. Awesome. And I just wanted to recommend it. Oh, yeah. I am lo- it's He's I'm good. reading it slowly because I only allow myself to read it when I'm, you know, huffing and puffing. But oh, he it is, is so good, really isn't he? developing nicely. Yeah. So and and wanna- tech topics uh, absolutely. I mean, he's so good on tech. Yes. Um, and, and the topics that he covers are, you know, he's going to be on uh, Triangulation this afternoon at uh, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 2200 UTC, Daniel Suarez. And I have so many questions for him. You know, is Raconteur real? Is there anything like that's out there? It's uh, just fascinating. Yeah. He, I mean, he gets this stuff. It, well, oh, yeah. It's all, he, gets, he gets the tech right so that it's satisfying. Yeah. But it's very well put together. It's challenging. I mean, it, there's I, some very I, challenging stuff in here. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's great. Now, I heard you talking. I guess it must have been on Sunday when I had tuned in to to listen to Matt um, and and you talk uh, about uh, Total Recall, uh, which yeah. I saw with, I saw with Jen on Monday. Oh, good. And what'd you think? Because you know, I love the Phil. It's a Philip K. Dick book, which of course is brilliant. Yep. And, and I love the old, the, the original Schwarzenegger. Get, uh, get yourself movie. to Mars. Why am I standing here with a towel on my head? <laughs> yeah, great stuff. There, there is a sense, and maybe it's me being as old as I am, where I'm, I'm feeling a little impatient with movies that just have action for its own sake. I, no, I'm the same way, and maybe it is. You know, age, it's like okay, so come on, let's get on with the plot. Yeah, you know, it's like so another like, car chase. Really, really. Yeah, it's like those Transformer movies. It's yeah. just like okay, we know we've got CG figured out. Right. <laughs> you know, we, I can't tell the difference between what's real nice and not yeah. anymore. Yeah. So thank you very much, but let's just not fill 45 minutes of the movie with gratuitous non-stop action I, I just no longer that interesting so um you know i'm very excited about the newborn movie that that comes out at the end of this week um and I, i'm glad i saw total recall but it's like eh, okay i rewatched it, it, the old arnold version just getting ready for this yeah. and it, it is a little dated but it's such a fun movie yeah it's well it's it's just well it's well done yeah yeah so yeah i mean kind of cheesy <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of cheap. I yeah. mean, it just doesn't, you know, the 80s, it's, well, this is, they didn't have the computer effects and all that stuff. It no. all had to be real and rubber. Was that, <laughs> that had Johnny Cab in it, didn't it? Ah, you're in a Johnny Cab. You're in a Johnny Cab. That's right. Uh, Did, was there no Johnny Cab in the uh, in the new one? Oh, no, we didn't, we didn't have that. You're in a Johnny Cab. <laughs> I mean, the, the visually, this thing was 
spectacular. And I and I I I, I said to Jen, and I as I remembered feeling when I was watching Avatar, I'm just my I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a wide eyed, and I'm looking at these scapes, right. and I'm thinking, how do you make this movie? I mean, this is just uh, this this isn't real yet. It looks perfect. Yeah. I mean, just like. Yeah. Huge it is amazing, city isn't it? stuff yeah. that yeah. doesn't exist, and there it all is, fully imaged. Anyway, you know, we're, we're at a point now where we're just in sensory overload. It's just incredible. <laughs> what, so what you recommend want. seeing it, but but uh, don't expect uh, a miracle. Yeah, I think that the, the Amazing Spider-Man is the my That's still the one my you like favorite. The best, yeah. And I saw, of course, the new Batman or the final of the third, and and it was good. I liked it. I liked it better than I thought I would, to be honest. Good. I'm glad you saw it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was better than I thought it would be. But I haven't seen. Boy, it's doing well in the box office. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I wanted to share a brief, actually, almost only a couple sentences from a Mike Krusel who was kind enough. Actually, this was a posting in our news group. I noticed that it's from grc.spinrite, which is the Spinrite news group at news.grc.com. And he said, I have two Dell Dimension 4600C computers, and the main computer I use crashed over the weekend, giving the message, primary hard disk zero not found. That's never good. He says... (laughs) I ran Spinrite 6, and in about five hours, it repaired the drive, and Windows booted back up. I did run Windows XP check disk in recovery mode once before and then once after Spinrite. Thanks for its work, Mike. Good. So, yeah. another. Usually, if you can't see drive zero, I mean, you can't see it, you can't fix it, right? I mean, I guess it was Windows that couldn't see it. It was Windows that couldn't see it, but the BIOS, it was, BIOS still, phys- it. It was still physically there. Got so it. that, was, that was good enough. Yeah. Hey, before we get to uh, Matt Honan's hack, how it happened, the timeline, I, I'm dying to this. Uh, I've been tweeting about this all week saying we'll talk about it with Steve. We'll talk about it with Steve. And there's just so much interest. Um, so hang in there. We're going to do that. But I do want to mention Audible.com. And since you mentioned Kill Decision, tell mm. folks it is available on Audible.com. That's how I'm that's how I'm reading it. It's Jeff Gertner, the same guy. Who did uh, Demon the the first two books, Demon and Freedom TM, and he's good. He's he's got the right voice for it. It's like it's like an old friend is back. <laughs> I really, I have to say, I love it when they use the same reader for a series. And this is Kill Decision is not in a series. I was going to say we ought to mention this is not it's the fresh. third in the sequel. No. Yes, no, and but you know it's it's Suarez. He's got a oh, style. He's got a voice. It's good. Um, it is so good. I am just loving it, and I highly recommend. Listening to us this way, um, and it, you know, here's the deal: you do it for free. So here, so if you are not yet an Audible member, I want you to go to audible.com/slash/security/now, and you can get a, uh, a free one-month trial membership that'll include a credit towards a book. And this would be a very good. I'll just play you a little bit. Oh, I can't. I don't have audio coming out of this uh, computer, but you you really will enjoy it. Uh, that's one of the things I like about Audible. First of all, hundred thousand books. The best readers, really the best readers, uh, because a lot of the, a lot of these guys are like, oh, look at this. I didn't see this. Here's the review. Leo was right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, did, I just saw this. So, hey, what do you need? The guy says, Mark in Las Vegas says, Leo was right. He says, 
This is a great book. It is. I was a little, I was nervous about reading it because I loved Demon and um, Freedom Team Freedom. so much. I thought, can he live up to it? He did. Mm. Blows me away. This guy is the real deal. Three in a row. He's like a uh, hat trick. So what is Audible? Audible is 100,000 books, audio books you could play on your iPhone, your Android phone, even your Windows phone. They've got a great app for Android, Windows, and uh, iPhone that has your whole library in it, which means you can go back in time and listen to every book, any book that you've had. Now, I've been an Audible member since 2000. This is how much I love Audible. And I, that means I have over 500 books in my library, and they're all at my disposal, all available anytime I want to, uh, I want to look at them. Here, here is, here's the uh, app on my Nexus 7. Um, this is my library of uh, stuff going back in time. <laughs> There's a lot of This is great, you know? I mean, uh, the, wonderful books, great content. You, you you will never be at a loss anytime you've got a few minutes to spare your reading. And to me, that's what I like. I'm reading again. I love to read. But who has time in this day and age to read? Well, now you do with audible.com. Uh, it is fantastic. And so here's your chance to try it absolutely free. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And you can join Audible and, uh, and you're going to love it. I'm telling you. First book is free. And a great one, a great choice. We love it. Kill Decision from Daniel Suarez. Look, if you download it, the nice thing about Audible, you know, you get it right away. If you download it right now, within 10 minutes, you'll be listening to this book. If you start listening right now, you'll be ready for our interview with Daniel in four hours. <laughs> well, it's a 13-hour book, but you'll, you'll But be, finish listening to us first. Yeah, no, that's a good point. <laughs> Audible, you can, you know, you, this is the beauty of this. You can listen whenever you want. AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. Yes. I was going to say, and um, for those people who are getting this podcast this After evening or tomorrow, yeah. um, I'm sure that you'll have your interview with Daniel oh, yes. on triangulation available on your site. Oh, yes. And you should listen yes. because uh, it's, it's, uh, he's, he's a great guy. I met him at Foo Camp and huh. he was so nice. He, he, he said, uh, you know, he came up and he was kind of shy and he said, oh, I just have always wanted to meet you. And I said, are you kidding <laughs> I said, what? I've always wanted to meet you. Uh, I'm a, we said we are mutual fan club. Neat. Nicest guy. And, uh, and, uh, anyway, just really can't oh, wait he, to talk to him. He sure knows how to put a book together. Boy, is he good. Anyway. So. Now, um, let's tell so, this story. Oh, boy. Yes. So, Matt Honan is a well-known technology writer. And, uh, this is a little dramatic, but this is the best way to introduce our listeners into what you and I now understand happened. And then I'm gonna, we'll, we'll go back and, and build a timeline forensically because Matt just, uh, puts this out in a little bit of a jumbled sequence. And I, uh, I have to say first, uh, let me say right up front, I've known Matt for years, really like the guy. He's yep. really the real deal, very smart. And um, yes, he made mistakes, as we all have, I think, in time. But uh, I'm I'm grateful. I talked to him last night. He said this is a hard story for me to cover because uh, my it 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 just kills me that this happened. Um, but at the same time, and and I told him this. I said he said I think I'm making a difference. I think I, I said Matt. Oh, he's done a service, huge there, service, no doubt about it. So 
uh, on Monday, uh, the, the the story he wrote in Wired in his Gadget Lab column, uh, it was titled "How Apple and Amazon Security Flaws Led to My Epic Hacking." And as you said, Leo, this as as, as we'll shortly see, he's really not laying it all off on them, um, and. Our listeners will soon see that, you know, this can happen to anybody. He says, in the space of one hour, my entire digital life was destroyed. First, my Google account was taken over, then deleted. Next, my Twitter account was compromised and used as a platform to broadcast racist and homophobic messages. And worst of all, my Apple ID account was broken into and my hackers used it to remotely erase all the data on my iPhone, iPad, and MacBook. In many ways, this was all my fault. My accounts were daisy-chained together. Getting into Amazon let my hackers get into my Apple ID account, which helped them get into Gmail, which gave them access to Twitter. Had I used two-factor authentication for my Google account, it's possible that none of this would have happened because their ultimate goal was always to take over my Twitter account and wreak havoc. Lulls. Had I been regularly backing up the data on my MacBook, I wouldn't have had to worry about losing more than a year's worth of photos covering the entire lifespan of my daughter, or documents and emails that I had stored in no other location. Those security lapses are my fault, and I deeply, deeply regret them. But what happened to me exposes vital security flaws in several customer service systems, most notably Apple's and Amazon's. Apple tech support gave the hackers access to my iCloud account. Amazon tech support gave them the ability to see a piece of information, a partial credit card number that Apple used to release information. In short, the very four digits that Amazon considers unimportant enough to display in the clear on the web are precisely the same ones that Apple considers secure enough to perform identity verification. The disconnect exposes flaws in data management policies endemic to the entire technology industry and points to a looming nightmare as we enter the era of cloud computing and connected devices. This isn't just my problem. Since Friday, August 3rd, when hackers broke into my accounts, I've heard from other users who were compromised in the same way, at least one of whom was targeted by the same group. Moreover, if your computers aren't already cloud-connected devices, they will be soon. Apple is working hard to get all of its customers to use iCloud. Google's entire operating system is cloud-based, and Windows 8 the most cloud-centric operating system yet will hit desktops by the tens of millions in the coming year. My experience leads me to believe that cloud-based systems need fundamentally different security measures. 
password-based security mechanisms, which can be cracked, reset, and socially engineered, no longer suffice in the era of cloud computing. I realized something was wrong about 5 p.m. Friday afternoon. I was playing with my daughter when my iPhone suddenly powered down. I was expecting a call, so I went to plug it back in. It then rebooted to the setup screen. This was irritating, but I wasn't concerned. I assumed it was a software glitch, and my phone automatically backs up every night. I just assumed it would be a pain in the ass and nothing more. I entered my iCloud login to restore, and it wasn't accepted. Again, I was irritated, but not alarmed. I went to connect the iPhone to my computer and restore from that backup, which I just had happened to do the other day. When I opened my laptop, an iCal message popped up telling me that my Gmail account information was wrong. Then the screen went gray and asked for a four-digit PIN. I didn't have a four-digit PIN on my laptop. By now, I knew something was very, very wrong. For the first time, it occurred to me that I was being hacked. Unsure of exactly what was happening, I unplugged my router and cable modem, turned off the Mac Mini we use as an entertainment center, grabbed my wife's phone, and called Apple Care, the company's tech support service, and spoke with a rep for the next hour and a half. It wasn't the first call they had had that day about my account. In fact, I later found out that a call had been placed just a little more than a half hour before my own. But the Apple rep didn't bother to tell me about the first call concerning my account, despite the 90 minutes I spent on the phone with him. Nor would Apple tech support ever tell me about the first call voluntarily. It only shared this information after I asked about it. And I only knew about the first call because a hacker told me he had made the call himself. At 4.33 p.m., according to Apple's tech support records, someone called Apple Care claiming to be me. Apple says the caller reported that he couldn't get into his me.com email, which, of course, was my me.com email. In response, Apple issued a temporary password. It did this despite the caller's inability to answer security questions I had set up. And it did this after the, attack, after the hacker supplied only two pieces of information that anyone with an internet connection and a phone can discover. At 4.50 p.m., a password reset confirm, confirmation arrived in my inbox. I don't really use my at e.com email and rarely check it. But even if I did... I might not have noticed the message because the hackers immediately sent it to the trash. They then were able to follow the link in that email to permanently reset my own Apple ID password. At 4.52 p.m., a Gmail password recovery email arrived 
in my me.com mailbox. <laughs> Two minutes later, another email arrived notifying me that my Google account password had changed. At 5.02 p.m., they reset my Twitter password. At 5, they used iCloud's Find My tool to remotely wipe my iPhone. At 5.01, they remotely wiped my iPad. At 5.05, they remotely wiped my MacBook. Jeez. Around this time, they deleted my Google account. At 5.10... I placed the call to Apple Care. At 5.12, the attackers posted a message to my account on Twitter taking credit for the hack. By wiping my MacBook and deleting my Google account, they now not only had the ability to control my account, but were able to prevent me from regaining access. And crazily, In ways that I don't and never will understand, those deletions were just collateral damage. My MacBook data, including those irreplaceable pictures of my family, of my child's first year, and relatives who have now passed from this life, weren't the target. Nor were the eight years of messages in my Gmail account. The target was always Twitter. My MacBook data was torched simply to prevent me from getting back in. Lulls, he writes. I spent an hour and a half talking to Apple Care. One of the reasons it took me so long to get anything resolved with Apple during my initial phone call was because I couldn't answer the security questions it had on file for me. It turned out there's a good reason for that. Perhaps an hour or so into the call, the Apple representative on the line said, Mr. Herman, I dot, dot, dot. Wait, what did you call me? Mr. Herman, my name is Honan. Apple had been looking at the wrong account all along. Perhaps because of that, I couldn't, well, because of that, I couldn't answer my security questions. And because of that, it asked me, an alternate set of questions that it said would let tech support let me into my me.com account, a billing address, and the last four digits of my credit card. Of course, when I gave them those, it was no use because tech support had misheard my last name. It turns out a billing address and the last four digits of a credit card number are the only two pieces of information anyone needs to get into your iCloud account. Once supplied, Apple will issue a temporary password, and that password grants access to iCloud. Apple Tech Support confirmed to me twice over the weekend that all you need to access someone's Apple ID is the associated email address, a credit card number, the billing address, and the last four digits of a credit card on file. I was very clear about this. During my second tech support call to Apple Care, the representative confirmed this. Quote, that's all you have to have to verify something with us, unquote, he said. We talked to Apple directly 
about its security security policy. And company spokesperson Natalie Karras told Wired, quote, Apple takes customer privacy seriously and requires multiple forms of verification before resetting an Apple ID password. In this particular case, the customer's data was compromised by a person who had acquired personal information about the customer. In addition, we found that our own internal policies were not followed completely. I'll just interject here that that turns out not to be true. Um, Continuing, she said, quoting, We are reviewing all of our processes for resetting account passwords to ensure our customers' data is protected. On Monday, so that's three days later, Monday at the beginning of this week, Wired tried to verify the hacker's access technique by performing it on a different account. We were successful. This means, ultimately, all you need in addition to someone's email address are those two easily acquired pieces of information, a billing address and the last four digits of a credit card on file. Here's the story of how the hackers got them. On the night of the hack, I tried to make use of the ruin that was my digital life. My Google account was nuked. My Twitter account was suspended. My phone was in a useless state of restore. And for obvious reasons, I was highly paranoid about using my me, my at me.com account for communications. I decided to set up a new Twitter account until my old one could be restored, just to let people know what was happening. I logged into Tumblr and posted an account of how I thought the takedown had occurred. At this point, I was assuming that my seven-digit alphanumeric Apple ID password had been hacked by brute force. In the comments, he says, friends, and oh, the comments, others guessed that hackers had used some sort of keystroke logger. At the end of the post, I linked to my new Twitter account. And then one of my hackers at messaged me. He would later identify himself as Phobia. I followed him. He followed me back. We started a dialogue via Twitter direct messaging and later continued via email and AIM. Phobia was able to reveal enough detail about the hack and my compromised accounts that it became clear he was, at the very least, a party to how it went down. I agreed not to press charges, and in return, he laid out exactly how the hack worked. But first, he wanted to clear something up. Quote, didn't guess your password or use brute force. I have my own guide on how to secure emails, unquote. I asked him why. Was I targeted specifically? Was this just to get to Gizmodo's Twitter account that had been linked to mine? No, Phobia said. They hadn't even been aware that my account was linked to Gizmodo's, that the Gizmodo linkage was was just gravy. He said the hack was simply a grab for my three-character Twitter handle. That's all they wanted. They just wanted to take it and mess it up and watch it burn. 
it wasn't personal. I honestly didn't have any heat towards you before this. This I'm quoting. I just liked your username, like I said before, he told me via Twitter direct message. After coming across my account, which, by the way, is cool. It's M-A-T, so at Matt. Uh, very nice Twitter account, which he clearly, as you mentioned on Sunday, Leo, got Re- very Deeply early. regrets. <laughs> <laughs> and got it early. He says, after coming across my account, the hackers did some background research. My Twitter account linked to my personal website where they found my Gmail address. Guessing that this was also the email address I used for Twitter, Phobia went to Google's account recovery page. He didn't even have to actually attempt a recovery. This was just a recon. Because I didn't have Google's two-factor authentication turned on, when Phobia entered my Gmail address, he could view the alternate email I had set up for account recovery. Google partially obscures that information, starring out many characters. But there were enough characters available. M star 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 N at me.com. Jackpot. This was how the hack progressed. If I had some other account aside from my from an email from an Apple email address or had used two-factor authentication for Gmail, everything would have been stopped there. But using the me.com email account as a backup meant I told the hacker I had an Apple ID account, which meant I was vulnerable to being hacked. Quote, you honestly can get into any email associated with Apple, unquote, phobia claimed in an email. And while it's work, that seems to be largely true. Since he already had the email, all he needed was my billing address and the last four digits of my credit card number to have Apple's care tech support issue him the keys to my account. So how did he get this vital information? He began with the easy one. He got the billing address by doing a who is search on my personal web domain. If someone doesn't have a domain, you can also look up his or her information on Spokio, White Pages, and PeopleSmart. Getting a credit card number is trickier, but it also relies on taking advantage of a company's back-end systems. Phobia says that a partner, that is a partner of his, performed this part of the hack, but described the technique to us, which we were able to verify via our own tech support calls. It's remarkably easy. So easy that Wired was able to duplicate the exploits twice in minutes. First, you call Amazon and tell them you are the account holder and want to add a credit card number to the existing account. All you need is the name on the account, an associated email address, and the billing address. Amazon then allows you to input a new credit card. 
And he says, Perens Wired used a bogus credit card number from a website that generates fake card numbers that conform with the industry's published self-check algorithm. Then you hang up. Next, you call back and tell Amazon that you've lost access to your account. Upon providing a name, billing address, and the new card number you gave the company on the prior call, Amazon now allows you to add a new email address to the account. From there, you go to the Amazon website and send a password reset to the new email account. This allows you to see all the credit cards on file for the account. Not the complete numbers, just the last four digits. But, as we know, Apple only needs those last four digits. We asked Amazon to comment on its security policy, but didn't have anything to share at press time. And it's also worth noting that one wouldn't have to call Amazon to pull this off. Your pizza delivery guy could do the same thing, for example. If you have an Apple ID, every time you call Pizza Hut, you're giving the 16-year-old on the other end of the line all he needs to take over your entire digital life. And so, with my name, address, and the last four digits of my credit card number in hand, Phobia called Apple Care, and my digital life was laid to waste. Yet still, I was actually quite fortunate. They could have used my email accounts to gain access to my online banking or financial services. They could have used them to contact other people and socially engineer them as well, which actually is a point that Ed Bott brought up on the on your, your Twitch show the, right. the day before um, that uh, Matt wrote this. Oh, and he says, <laughs> as Ed Bott pointed out on twit.tv. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my years as a technology journalist have put some very influential people in my address book. They could have been victimized too. Instead, the hackers just wanted to embarrass me, have some fun at my expense, Lulz. and enrage my followers on t- on followers on Twitter by trolling. I've done some pretty stupid things. Things you shouldn't do. I should have been regularly backing up my MacBook because I wasn't doing that. If all the photos from the first year and a half of my daughter's life are ultimately lost, I will have only myself to blame. I shouldn't have daisy chained two such vital accounts, my Google and my iCloud account together. I shouldn't have used the same email prefix across, that is his name portion, M. Honan, M-H-O-N-A-N, at gmail.com, mhonan at me.com, and mhonan at wired.com. And I should have had a recovery address that's only used for recovery without being tied to core services. But mostly, I shouldn't have had, I shouldn't have used my Find My Mac, my Find My iPhone has been a brilliant Apple service. If you lose your iPhone or have it stolen, the service lets you see where it is on a map. 
New York Times' David Pogue famously recovered his lost iPhone just last week, thanks to the service. And so, when Apple introduced Find My Mac in its update to its Lion operating system last year, I added that to my iCloud options, too. After all, as a reporter, often on the go, my laptop is my most important tool. But as a friend pointed out to me, while the service makes sense for phones, which are quite likely to be lost, it makes less sense for computers. You're almost certainly more likely to have your computer accessed remotely than physically. And even worse is the way Find My Mac is implemented. When you perform a remote hard drive wipe on Find My Mac, the system asks you to create a four-digit PIN so that the process can be reversed. But here's the thing. If someone else performs that wipe, someone who gained access to your iCloud account through malicious means, there's no way for you to enter that PIN. A better way to have this set up would be to require a second method of authentication when Find My Mac is initially set up. If this were the case, someone who was able to get into an iCloud account wouldn't be able to remotely wipe devices with malicious intent. It would also mean that you could potentially have a way to stop a remote wipe in progress. But that's not how it works. And Apple would not comment as to whether stronger authentication is being considered. As of Monday, when he was writing this, both of these exploits used by, and this I'm still reading from what he wrote, Matt writes, as of Monday, both of these exploits used by the hackers were still functioning. Wired was able to duplicate them. Apple says its internal tech support processes weren't followed, and this is how my account was compromised. However, this contradicts what Apple Care told me twice that weekend. That is, if, in, if that is in fact the case, that I was the victim of Apple not following its own internal processes, then the problem is widespread. I asked Phobia why he did this to me. His answer was not satisfying. He says he likes to publicize security exploits so companies will fix them. He says it's the same reason he told me how it was done. He claims his partner in the attack was the person who wiped my MacBook. Phobia expressed remorse for this and says he would have stopped it had he known. Quote, yeah, I really am a nice guy, IDK, so I don't know why I do some of the things I do, unquote. He told me via AIM. IDK, my goal is to get it out there to other people. So eventually everyone can come can overcome hackers, unquote. I asked specifically about the photos of my little girl, which are to me the greatest tragedy in all this. Unless I can recover those photos via data recovery services, they are gone forever. On AIM, I asked him if I was if he was sorry for doing that. Phobia replied, quote, even though I wasn't the one that did it, I feel sorry about that. That's a lot of memories. I'm only 19, but if my parents lost 
and the footage of me and pics, I would be beyond sad, and I'm sure they would be too, unquote. But let's say he did know and failed to stop it. Hell, for the sake of argument, let's say he did it. Let's say he pulled the trigger. The weird thing is I'm not even especially angry at Phobia or his partner in the attack. I'm mostly mad at myself. I'm mad as hell for not backing up my data. I'm sad and shocked and feel that I'm ultimately to blame for that loss. But I'm also upset that this ecosystem that I've placed so much of my trust in has let me down so thoroughly. I'm angry that Amazon makes it so remarkably easy to allow someone into your account, which has obvious financial consequences. And then there's Apple. I bought into the Apple account system originally to buy songs at 99 cents a pop. And over the years, that same ID has evolved into a single point of entry that controls my phones, tablets, computers, and data-driven life. With this Apple ID, someone can make thousands of dollars of purchases in an instant or do damage at a cost that you can't put a price on. Well, and I'll give you a couple of PSs. Yes. First of all, the good news is, uh, you know, I don't know why Apple didn't ask Phobia for the pin. Maybe he did and it wasn't given to him. But he, Apple was able to uh, apparently brute force it because it's only four digits. And uh, they said that the data will be on that hard drive. So I've hooked Matt up with uh, uh, the folks at Drive Savers, and uh, I think they'll be able to get his data back. Good. So dodged a bullet on that one. Uh, the other good news, which, and I'm sure you're going to say this, but we should say it right up front, is that both Apple and Amazon have, in response to this, changed their systems. Yes. Amazon permanently. Apple, it's not clear. Yes, exactly. So, okay, let me just, I'm going to briefly recount in sequence, uh, adding a little more detail than, than Matt did. So, so this began sometime mid to early afternoon on Friday, August 3rd, when one or more hackers just took a shine to this, to an unknown person's Twitter account because they say it was three characters. It was at Matt. They didn't know anything about him, didn't know who he was, um, just thought, hey, that's cool. And I don't know how many followers he had. I checked yesterday and, and it was, you know, not hundreds of thousands. So maybe they got lost in the account transfer or freeze or something. I mean, it didn't look like there was a huge you know, it's nothing like what you have following you, Leo. So I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's because it's linked to no, his moto. It's so, so complicated. Uh, he, he may not have been able to bring his followers with him. It's not. Right. And the, uh, by the way, these guys, and I've, I have uh, corresponded a little bit with uh, Phobia on Twitter uh, and his partner in crime. And um, they got something going on because his partner in crime has a Twitter account that has 122 tweets and over 100,000 followers. So, and there's something going. On. Wow! I, I, my suspicion would be they have uh, they have more access to uh, Twitter than they have acknowledged. Mm -hmm. There's something, or maybe they've created a hundred thousand bots. I don't know. Well, so apparently, 
not knowing anything about Matt, but just liking at M-A-T, um, they do some recon. They, they see that, that from the information on his Twitter account, at Matt, which is where this whole thing starts, it's, that account links to Honan, H-O-N-A-N, dot net, which is Matt's personal website. They go there and they find his Google Mail account, mhonan at gmail.com. They access Gmail's account recovery, putting that in as their email address. And because there is no additional protection, and this is what we're going to talk about here in a second, Leo, uh, the lack of two-factor authentication means that account recovery information is unprotected and that account's alternate email address is it's visible but obscured. But So what they see is m star 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 n <laughs> at me.com. I don't really have to guess what those are. No, because, yeah. I mean, they've already saw, saw M-H-O-N-A-N right. at gmail.com. So they realize, okay, he's used, and that's what Matt refers to in the article as using the same first name across his accounts. So that, of course, allows them to guess Apple Matt's Apple ID and cloud address. The hacker also does a who is search on Matt's personal web domain to get more information. Now, I've done that. And you could do that, Leo. I'm not going to share what it shows because it's horrifying. I mean, yeah, and this is his... an argument for who is privacy. Um, yes, which... and I'm I'm annoyed that that at least for if you're a network solutions customer as I am, they want to charge you right. to obscure this. I should it's I like... should point out that Hover does not. Okay. Um, so if you do so... a who is on our our twit.tv or any of our sites. You'll get the administrative contact, the te technical contact addresses will be a company called Contact Privacy in Toronto, Canada. And that not does us. not cost you anything? Nope. Good. That's one of the so, reasons I like Hover. So what's here for in this who is, I mean, is is right now. I mean, I did it, I did it an hour ago. Yeah. And it's like, okay, Matt, fix this. Because, I mean, here is way too much information exposed publicly still. So you know, Wednesday morning. Okay, so now they've got his street address. Uh, they've got his, I think, I don't know if this is a landline or a cell phone, but that's there too. Um, and, um, you know, zip code, the works. And a bunch of email addresses. So now someone calls Amazon wanting to add an, an additional credit card to Matt's account. Now, this is this is kind of uh, I think key because yes, this is this is social engineering. Yes, not a technical hack. This is not a MySQL uh, well, attack. How many times are we arguing about how many bits the crypto right. key has to have? Right. And no bits came into play right. here. I don't you consider doing a, a who is anything particularly technical. That and that's really all they were doing. This is social engineering, one hundred percent. Well, and also, frankly, um, I, I'm I'm really glad that this and that well, this whole story came to light, and that Matt. Um, I'm so sorry for his loss of data and the embarrassment and everything. But but the way Amazon was set up, and as you said, they are no longer, and that's like thank goodness. But 
someone was very clever to put this together. Here's the Amazon portion. So you, you call Amazon on the phone and you say you want to add an additional credit card. What do you need? The name, which, of course, they have, Matt Honan, the email address associated with the account. Now, they guessed that he would be using Gmail. He was, so mhonan at gmail.com. Um, there were two ways to get that, Twitter to website to Gmail or who is, because Matt's who is had that too. And as we know, email addresses are not hard to find. And the billing address, which they got right there from who is. So that allowed them to, to invent a credit card and stick it on the account. Then they hang up and they call back. They're going to get somebody else. Now they say they've lost access. What do you need to gain access? The name, which we already know they have, the billing address, which they have, and the last four digits of any one credit card registered on the account. So they gave the four digits of the one they just added a second before, and that gave the, that, that allowed them to add a new email address to the account. So now they've, they've added an email address they control, which they don't yet have. Then they go to the website and say, we can't log in, send us a password reset. So, and we're going to see this a bunch. And this is one of the issues that this whole thing brings up is the use of email for, uh, for password recovery, which is the weak link in, in, in much of this. So they get an email address they control into the account, ask for password reset. That sends them a link allowing them then to log in to Matt's Amazon account where they where they can see everything he's ever purchased and all of his actual credit cards. Well, they see the one that they just that they just spoofed and added and they see his real one. Now they have the last four digits of Matt's main card and they've already got his name, email addresses and um, billing address, which is the same as his home address. So at 4.33 p.m., with all this information, the hacker calls AppleCare, impersonates Matt, claiming that he'd forgotten the password to his mhonan at me.com account, which they now know. These guys, I'd say one thing, they're ballsy. They are. <laughs> they get a lot of nerves. Yes. And I think that to do this, you have to be good at acting yes i think and yes i i completely agree you've got to sound convincing although yeah. frankly I've, I've had some calls from my credit card company right. where you know i wish the other guy was an actor yeah um i can barely understand yeah. what he's saying so maybe not maybe you know could be, uh, apple can't make a yeah. judgment about its users uh and Good this point. is the whole point is apple is trying to make it easy for yes. users yes unfortunately these systems fail open rather than failing right. closed. Right. So he says, I've forgotten the password, mhonan at me.com. Uh, I need a temporary password so I can access my account. Despite the fact that the hacker fails all the security questions, doesn't know any of Matt's security questions, the backup in that Apple provides or provided 
maybe that's over. We're not sure yet. Is well, if you if you can't remember your security questions, uh, how about your um, how about your billing address and the last four digits of your credit card that they have on file? Which of course they now have thanks to the game they played over at Amazon. It's so, probably other ways to get it too. It's fairly easy yeah. to do this, right? I mean, yeah. that's not much well, to ask. Here, this was also the point that he makes about you know the Pizza Hut guy. He, he knows that. When you phone for pizza, you give them your address because you'd like it delivered, and you give them your credit card number over the phone. Mm -hmm. So they've got that. Mm -hmm. And how many how many places now are we seeing people asking for your email address? Because you know we just like to you know inform you of any Stay updates. Stay in touch. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So so that allows that. So Apple issues a temporary password, which allows the hacker to log into iCloud and Matt's mhonan at email.com email account. Um, and this is, this is one point that's important. This is in keeping with Apple's official care policies at the time. This was not a mistake. And that's a point that Matt made, and, and I've read similar things coming at this from different directions about this um, earlier this week. So this is, it is not the case that, that, that one spokesperson misspoke. Okay, that was at 4.33. At 4.50, Apple sends the password reset link to Matt's mhonan at me account. The hackers log in with a temporary password. They receive and delete the password reset email. Not that it really matters. Um, and they reset Matt's password, locking Matt out of his own Apple ID and iCloud account. Two minutes later, 4.52, Google Mail password recovery email arrives at Matt's mhonan at me.com account. So what they did was they went over back, they went back over to Google where they had visited before, where they saw that he had a, an, an at me.com account. They do password recovery at Google, which sends the recovery link to the me.com account. So they click that. That gives them access to Matt's Gmail account. They change his Gmail password, locking him out of his Gmail account. At two minutes later, 4.54, mail arrives at me.com informing Matt, who can no longer log into there either, that his Google Mail password has been changed. So the notice goes out that the password change has been uh, effective, but Matt can't see that because he's already been locked out of his accounts. A few minutes later, with access at 5 p.m., with access to Matt's Apple ID and iCloud account, hackers remotely wipe Matt's iPhone. A minute later at 5.01, they remotely wipe Matt's iPad. A minute later, at 5.02, the Twitter account password is reset. So a reset comes. The password is changed. So they now have taken over his Twitter account. Matt's locked out of his very cool at Matt account. And hackers have achieved their intended goal. A couple minutes later, having verified that, at 5.05, to prevent Matt from having any tools to regain control, they remotely wipe 
Matt's not-backed-up MacBook, containing, as we know, his only copies of his newborn daughter's photo collection and pics of older relatives who've passed away. At 5.10, five minutes after that, Matt notices his iPhone has been cleared and places his first 90-minute call to Apple Care. Two minutes later, hackers having control of at Matt Twitter account post a message to Matt's account taking credit for their actions. So Wired successfully repeated many of these alleged hacks, verifying them through the weekend and into the beginning of the week. Apple has reacted, as reported by Wired. Um, Wired said, Apple on Tuesday, so that's the day before we're recording this. This is uh, would be Tuesday the 7th. Um, Apple on Tuesday ordered its support staff to immediately stop processing Apple ID password changes requested over the phone. An Apple worker with knowledge of the situation speaking on condition of anonymity told Wired that the over-the-phone password freeze on, on, on obeying these change requests would last at least 24 hours. The employee speculated that the freeze was put in place to give Apple more time to determine what security policies needed to be changed, if any. When Wired tried to exploit again, quote, the representative said that the company was going through system-wide maintenance updates that prevented anyone from resetting any passwords over the phone. The rep said we should try calling back after about 24 hours and directed us to iforgot.apple.com to change Apple ID passwords ourselves using the web instead. Quote, right now, our system does not allow us to reset passwords, the Apple rep told Wired. I don't know why. In an earlier attempt on Tuesday to change an Apple ID password, which is the same password used to log into iTunes and iCloud, Apple customer service offered up a different response, saying that passwords could only be changed over the phone if we were able to supply a serial number for a device linked to the Apple ID in question. For example, an iPhone, iPad, or MacBook computer. The rep also suggested changing our Apple ID password online at appleid.apple.com or iforgot.apple.com. On the Amazon side, also via Wired, Amazon changed its customer privacy policies on Monday, closing security gaps that were exploited in the identity hacking of Wired reporter Matt Honan on Friday. Previously, Apple allowed people to call in and change the email address associated with an Amazon account or add a credit card number to an Amazon account as long as the caller could identify him or herself by name, email address, and mailing address, three bits of personal information that are easily found online. On Tuesday, Amazon handed down to its customer service department a policy change that no longer allows people to call in and change account settings, such as credit cards or email addresses associated with its user accounts. 
Amazon officials were not available for comment on the security changes, but during phone calls to Amazon customer service on Tuesday, representatives told us that the changes were sent out that morning and put in place for, quote, your security. Good. So there is the story. Yes, very, very good. Um, so what uh, have we learned? <laughs> in other words, I think the thing that uh, people really want uh, is to know, well, what should I be doing so that I can make this harder? I don't know if you can make it impossible, but what should I be doing to make it harder? Clearly, the the thing, how many times have we seen that convenience mm. is the enemy of security? Mm -hmm. What was so convenient for Matt was that, first of all, that M. Honan was the same email, whether it had the suffix of Gmail or me.com or there was another one. There were you don't three. want readily guessable right. email addresses. So you that's number one. Because so, yes. you could guess my email address on every service I use. Every one. <laughs> Uh, we all know your email address, yeah. Leo. But, I mean, so I failed at that. I mean, uh, and it would be and fact, a bit of a pain to go change all that, to be honest. In I have fact, to create new accounts. We, we made the comment last week when we were talking about Outlook.com that there was a land rush to log in right. and lock down, name. you know, your, your name on Outlook.com. But truthfully, knowing my email address, because I'm never going to have a – knowing my email address shouldn't – I guess what I could do is create some dumb email addresses that are the ones I use just for accounts and account verification, well, right? Yes, that, that's the big problem. The big, so on one side, one aspect of convenience was that Matt happened to use M. Honan on, you know, as a, an available account name across his services such that it was obvious for the attackers to make the jump from his Gmail email address over to his Apple ID address just by guessing. Right. So, so there's that. But the main focus of convenience is that Gmail, everything pointed to Gmail. His Twitter account recovery was Gmail. His Apple ID recovery, his Amazon, you know, billing address was Gmail. Everything went there which was also where he conducted all of his other business. His website pointed there. So, so that single account makes a person's life very much easier. But unfortunately, that's the source. That's the major, that's the major aspect of insecurity that, over which we have control. We have no control over Amazon's policy. Right. And frankly, this was tricky enough that this gives me this, the, the creeps because um, I know from the dialogue that you shared with me that you had with, with these people, we believe them to be, I guess, um, last night, they said they know how to do this kind of thing against other services. Right. I asked him, I said, if you were going to hack me, how would you start? And he described this process. He said, well, the first thing we want to do is get as much inf information that's publicly online. We search for you. We, we want your docs, he called them. Um, right. And the problem is a lot of this stuff is online. And, and, you know, even down to home address, which is if you've ever bought a house, is public information. It is out there. 
Well, and and or, or contributed to a campaign a, or any number yep. of things. We're also seeing a, a trend. I mean, I, I'm seeing this in the news that the next generation of of people growing up in this social networking environment are they they sort of take it for granted and they're putting their lives online. You know, there are people who are regretting it now because I'm seeing, for example, that that um, in employment interviews. They're asking for all of your social networking account names so they can go do research on you. They're not using a resume. They're going out and like, you know, looking at your Facebook and who are your followers and, you know, digging into your lives. So so this the the the, the people who are growing up in this environment to a greater degree than than you and I, Leo. I mean, I, I just checked, you know, like, do I have iCloud on anything or the, the wipe my device? And it's like, no, I, I just sort of. That is a very risky yeah. <laughs> thing. And yet handy, if, especially for a laptop. I mean, uh, to be able to wipe your portable device is great if it gets stolen. It's a, it's a, yes. it's a form of security. So, well, the problem so, really is that Apple makes it a little too easy for somebody to hijack your account and then wipe your stuff. Well, yes. And that that's a problem that. That is an outgrowth of the real problem, which is we, to this day, the only means that the universal means for authenticating someone is demonstrating control of an email account. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the issue. It's what's your, you know, do, are you the person who receives mail? Now, the really frightening thing I mean, if we want to look at that, is that email is unencrypted. This is all going across the, right. the wire in plain text. Right. You know, web sessions increasingly, as we know, are protected by SSL, HTTPS, but email generally is not. And so, you know, here are all these links for account recovery flying back and forth. And, and that's, those are literally the keys to the kingdom. So... So the problem is that there, we, we, to this day and age, I mean, t t even today, in this day and age, at this point, there we don't, you know, nobody has YubiKeys built in. We're not all carrying, you know, Google Authenticator or VeriSign identity protection tokens or, or you know, the something you have approach, which is why... I loved that little tidbit we saw or we, we just heard about Apple sort of experimenting with you need to tell us the serial number of your device because there that's were, a good one. were yeah. yes that's good that's not something and, and well, of course if your device has been stolen yes and unfortunately <laughs> if, if once it becomes widespread it'll be like your social security number it'll right. you know I mean it'll be posted and available and in databases for people to check and so forth so you know unfortunately we're just really bad at managing this kind of information. I'm annoyed, for example, when I get uh, statements like privacy statements from my credit card companies, and they're saying, unless you send this back and tell us no, we're going to do the following things. And I look at what they're, and it's like, you know, share your right. personal information with our business partners, unspecified, just you know anybody who we're we're thinking we want we want to do business with unless you tell us we can't. Well, so wait a minute. Why is this opt out rather than opt in? So so that's a problem. But but 
but back to what we can do. Um, we know there are beginning to be second factor authentication. One of the problems is, as you know, these hackers who you who you had the conversation with and who Matt spoke with, they said all we need is information. Information when you know they made phone calls. This, this all the the essence of these attacks, as you said, they had to be rather bold because this was not something done all online. This was people on the phone providing information. So there was there was nowhere here was was as we have discussed in multi-factor authentication many times something you have. This was all something you know. Mm-hmm. It was security questions. It was last four digits of your credit card number. I mean, all of this something you know, not something that you physically possess. So, so I would say the the right thing to do, the best thing we could do, because we we again we cannot control the policies of all the companies we do business with. I'm glad this happened. I'm glad Amazon got a wake-up call. I'm glad Apple got a wake-up call. But, you know, they're two biggies, but they're not certainly the only people that that may have hackable policies. Well, and these so, guys claim they have many other companies with similar precisely. bad policies that they can precisely. take advantage of. So, so you really want to bifurcate your... Because email, uh, email confirmation loops are the only way we have still for doing password recovery is you want to consciously separate it completely your uh, an, an email account for those sorts of purposes from the ones you normally use during the day. And it's going to be less convenient. It'd be much easier if they were all going to the same place. But you want to use a different account name. You want to use a, a, a domain name maybe that is different. But you also want a an account where, where as to the best of your ability, it, I mean, it looks like they honor tight recovery. I know, for example, even PayPal you know, I'm set up with my football that I'm still using the 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 six digit time varying code and a, a VIP token on my phone, so I'm able to use it when I'm away from home. But right there, underneath the the challenge for those is click here if you don't have it with you. What? Right. You know, Almost you know. every time. <laughs> right. Because again, convenience trumps security. Yeah. The point is, I'm I'm promising I'm going to have it with me. Right. I mean, and I've look, I went looking around. Is there any way I can say take that exception off? Right. I I I want the security of having to have what I'm telling you, I will have, and you're telling me I have to have. Except you're telling me I don't have to right. have it. Yeah. So you got to wonder. Well. How- <laughs> yeah. So, so and that's the problem, by the way, with security questions because people don't remember them. Uh, then they go, okay, well, you don't need it. All you need is the last four digits, or they did. All <laughs> you sorry, need is. You forgot your question. Just give us your email and last four. We'll we'll call it a day. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I wanted you know, to ask you specifically about two-factor authentication on Google, and Google has a particular yes. problem now. Facebook has turned on, or has available, and you should turn it on two-factor authentication. And what it will do is we'll send a uh, a code. Actually, you have to use the Facebook app on your smartphone. It will give you a code, which you can then enter if you're going to log in on an unrecognized machine. I think that's great. The problem with so that Google... probably means that they leave a persistent cookie on the machine, 
Um, they and do. Then, and then from then on, it's a when known that machine. machine is being used, right. it's, it's like, okay, that's cool. And you can, you can, you can rev- I presume you can revoke those cookies and so forth. I'm pretty sure there's somewhere you could say, I don't recognize any of these devices. Let's start over. Right. Uh, and now Google has second factor authentication, but it's more tricky for Google because not only do you log into your Google account on the web and on Google applications, both of which understand second factor authentication, there are a great many third-party applications that do not. Mm. So what Google is required to do if you turn on second factor authentication is give you one-time use passwords, which are all, by the way, alphanumeric. Now, they're only one-time use, so that's probably okay. They're not strong passwords. Um, and And... Now, for instance, if I want to use, I have a calendar app that I use that uses Google Calendar. Instead of using my Google password to log into this, I have to use this one-time authentication code. And then it's a pain in the butt, but that expires in some cases every 30 days, in some cases in unknown ways. And you've got to go generate another one and use it again. And that seems to me... Besides being a pain in the neck, and I've tried, I keep trying to turn this thing on, and I always turn it off because I have so. I'm a little different than most people. I have many, many devices with many, and, and they're all logging into Google Email, Google Calendar, Google Voice. That means I have to enter these in all the time. I have dozens of one-time passwords. Uh, yeah. It seems to me if I have a strong password on Google, and and this I think is the most important thing people can do on Google, have attached a cell phone number for account recovery to it. That's yes, not done and, by default. And, 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 and not link it to another address. like And link you know, it to a separate address that nobody knows, which I've done. Yes. That that's yep. going to be as good as this second, well, not theoretically as good, but practically as good as a second factor authentication. It's yes, certainly a and lot more practical pain. for you right. to, to use. Because as we know, if it becomes a pain, it'll get turned off. If right. it's, I mean, it's, despite our best intentions and our desire to be secure, convenience will trump that ultimately. Right. If everything supported second factor authentication, I could use that Google Authenticator to generate that. Then I'd be happy. I don't mind entering my password and a code for my cell phone. But having to go yep. back to the web, get a one-time use password, enter it in, and it has to be entered manually in many cases because I can't cut and paste because it's not on the same device. Now, are, is, are these like startup problems where the two-factor authentication is not yet permeated I would guess. Google's ecosystem? Yeah, yeah, it's not Google. These are third-party apps. So a lot of apps, for instance are designed to get Gmail, but they're not Google apps, or oh, get, to I, get I, your calendar, but they're not Google you. apps. So even I desktop apps, so you can no longer, because you've turned on second-factor authentication, just use your Google password to open those apps up. So Google yep. creates for you a one-time-use password. And do you want to use those, or do you have to use those? You have to use those. Okay. And no, no I, I meant those apps. Oh, well, I mean, if like, I'm using really... a smartphone, yeah. So if you're using oh. an iPhone, for instance... Yep. It doesn't support the second factor authentication. You have to use this right. one-time pass to get in there. And uh, that one-time pass, again, it's, it's I think it's 12 digits, it's, or 12 uh, letters. It's alphanumeric, all, case, uh, all uppercase. Um, so it's not super secure. One-time use, I gather, but I'm not convinced. And I have seen that there are ways to bypass. So I've decided yeah. that I'm not, it's just too inconvenient I'm not, and I'm not recommending this. People, you should all turn on second factor authentication on Google. <laughs> but for me, it's just too much trouble. And so, in fact, what I'm doing is, 
I've got an account recovery phone number. I think that that's a good way. If he had had that, he could have recovered his Gmail account, changed the password, well, and they would have been locked out again. Now, in the interim, they would have gotten into everything else. But yeah, yeah, it was actually it was his. It was their access to Gmail that allowed them to get to Twitter, and that was really where they wanted to get. Right. So it was it was because Twitter was pointing to Gmail, as was. Apple, as was Amazon, everything was converging there right. on Google Mail because Matt is Google centric. As you know, a huge Most number of, of people us are. are Many of us are. Yeah. yeah. So diversity, heterogeneity, is a very good idea. Yeah, and and being conscious of the fact that, unfortunately, at where we are today, email password recovery is 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 the only universally available solution right. so it's what everybody offers and he, and, and and unfortunately it's not something you can turn off right. it would, that it would be nice if there was a way to say i i will take responsibility for this you know it's it's uh, the perfect example is my i've talked about how i can't buy gas with a per- particular credit card because they just shut it down when they see it at a gas pump <laughs> and i've said can i please override this and yeah. they go no sorry you can't yeah so you know there there are no options uh, typically for for disabling account recovery. Maybe well no you you can't not have an email address. So <laughs> I I truly uh, what I actually believe is that we're all vulnerable to some degree, and uh, that you should yes. do the best you can. But what we're somewhat creepy, at the mercy of these third parties. What was creepy, and I've I've talked about how porous security is. That I mean it's more porous than we think what's creepy is that that it was a whim these one or more people just decided oh look at matt that would be it'd be fun to post to that twitter account let's go do that and they were able to you know i mean there was a huge collateral damage as matt described it as a consequence of they're simply wanting to send tweets out through his twitter account so you gotta wonder you know, <laughs> um, how safe we are to somebody wanting to to get us. I'm not clear, by the way, these one these single time passwords. There's, <laughs> I have to ask Matt Cuts. There's some there's unclarity in my mind about how they do not expire. But I I am told that once you use one, you can't you reuse it. That would make sense. That would thus I would, one time. I would think that's how it is. They're called application-specific passwords. Uh, and you can revoke them at any time. But you have to go to the okay. website, log into Google using two-factor authentication and revoke them. Um, it would be nice if, again, you know, lots of things would be nice. I mean, what, what Facebook is doing does raise the bar. The fact that they provide a secure cookie, I'm sure it's flagged secure, meaning that it will not be divulged over a non-SSL connection. So you have you have HTTPS secure connection to Facebook, which we know they have. I mean, you know, we've seen these changes and we've discussed them as they've been occurring over the last couple of years. Um, so there's a cookie that only that machine has. They will only send in a query over a secure connection from your browser, which identifies it to Facebook as one that has been seen before. So that's a nice barrier. I mean, that, that, so that is allowing Facebook to painlessly tag devices that you have in the past logged in from 
and allow you to do so again. You know, that would be some nice tech for Google to add. One one wonders why they don't yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're in a, in, a, in a world where we have to balance convenience with security. And so yep. inevitably, there are going to be flaws. Yep. What I, I guess the, the main takeaway, the only real takeaway I can suggest from from our from this fun, I mean, sad, but really gripping adventure with Matt is consider consider separating your accounts that could be used for password recovery so that I mean and and really it's not clear that you want a single account. You you kind of want a family of accounts and that be, start really becomes a pain. You know, if your main services all need to point somewhere different. Boy. I mean it the, it the problem is using email for this is just really that's the source of major insecurity. And I don't see that going away anytime soon because there's nothing to replace it and, until we get good something you have um, additional factor authentication. You know, I use yeah. it on Battle.net. I use it wherever it works. Uh, you know, so Blizzard has one and they have an authenticator that you have to download another app on your phone and it gives you the one-time key and you use yep. the password and mine is yep. never far from I got me. my fob for PayPal. Although, as you point out, PayPal's <laughs> got that little thing saying, did you lose your fob? Well, let's help you get in. <laughs> oh. So how good can this really be? Yeah. And by the way, using LastPass would not have saved Matt in the least. It wasn't an issue of somebody stealing his passwords. Nope. And that's nope. the key to this, is that there are holes, it turns out, in all sorts of places. And it just takes somebody who's willing to kind of mess around. And, and that's work what these, the system. And work the system. And that's what these kids are good at. they got a lot of time. They're smart. And, uh, and, and they're motivated, apparently. And, and, and there's a culture. I mean, there's a culture. Passing... They pass this stuff around, exactly. Exactly. So I asked this guy... Uh, how did you get started? Where'd you learn this stuff? How you you know this? How did you get all these techniques? He said it started when I was sixteen, and I wanted to change. I wanted a cool gamer tag on Xbox three hundred and sixty, and I asked my friends and see. This is what happens. They started passing around techniques for hacking, mm -hmm. and uh, as the and you know I'm sure I doubt very much any that these guys came up with their own techniques. Maybe they did, but I think in most cases they're just you know it's it's like a recipe book. Step there is one, an underground. Call Amazon. Yep. You know, there's an underground. Yep. And they're, you know, they're chatting on, you know, uh, if they're in high school, they're, I guess they're around that age. They're, you know, sitting around at lunch, passing back and forth, you know, new ways someone has found for running a scam. It's like, yeah. hey, I tried this and this worked, you know, and, and the person who comes up with it, you know, might be too timid to do it, but he tells somebody Who's who's you know who's brazen enough to go give it a shot you yeah. know to get on the phone and call Amazon and Apple? There's no harm to doing that. The worst you know they could say well, if you get suspicious you hang up. You well, you got to wonder too how anonymous those calls were. I mean those those it's not it's not as easy to obscure your phone number as it is your your internet oh, connection. Oh yeah, it is. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> But let's not go into that. Okay. <laughs> Steve, this is such a good subject. 
Um, it's just it's a it's a fascinating topic, and I'm really glad you addressed it. Uh, I guess well, we'll do questions next week. Yes, we will. We uh, you know we spend so much time talking about technology because that's where all this comes from. Right. But this was a perfect example of how technology can't save us if the policies are in place and the and the systems are in place that allow this kind of scheme you know this had nothing to do with how long the passwords were as you said or how many bits of crypto were in use these guys cut right through all that and and you know sent tweets out of Matt's Twitter account so wow thank you Steve Gibson he's the man Next week, your questions, right? We're going to do Q&A? Yep. Yes. So go to grc.com slash feedback to ask those questions. While you're there, check out Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You might pick up a couple of freebies. Steve's got a lot of them, including perfect paper passwords. You can just print out some passwords. Perfect. They're paper. The uh, password haystacks, which I use now all the time. I see this is the, this is the irony. I know I have very secure passwords. I'm not worried about my passwords anymore. <clears throat> yep. Apparently, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> all this stuff is available at grc.com. We do this show every uh, every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time. That's 1800 UTC on twit.tv. Watch live. We love it if you do. I love to see the chat, the feedback, and I certainly we pay attention to it. But you can also catch it after the fact. We make on-demand versions available. Now, Steve does some unusual on-demand versions. He does a 16-kilobit version for the bandwidth paired. That's at grc.com. He's also got transcripts, which is the ultimate in compact. ASCII text, baby. Uh, all of that, grc.com. But for the video, the higher quality audio, we've got that at Twit. Dot tv slash s n steve's on the twitter yeah i forgot to mention that i made an a uh, an improvement to the little animation that you saw last week for the first time steve was playing if, with his html5 and his javascript if you, if you do grc.com slash animation dot htm um i added peak detection to the output of the read amplifier so <laughs> it came out pretty cool this is you're having fun with this aren't you yeah, I am. I've this got. Is I've, cool. I've, this is all uh, programmatically generated. None of it is uh, graphics, right? You're just drawing lines exactly. and boxes and and squares and. Yeah, and it's like uh, I think it's less. Than, it's, it's around 30k, and when those waveforms get into the right amplifier, there, then it starts switching its polarity, which changes the direction of magnetism on the disc platter. Then the platter rotates over in my little schematic. Then the reed head picks up on it and now here oh, there's, oh, and, there's and, whoa geez. and we detected the pulse the 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 peak of the waveform <laughs> peak detector peak detector <laughs> you are a crack up oh what fun and and yeah. by the way you can view source on this he has not obfuscated the code i'm learning javascript uh, inspired by you and uh i'm i'm looking at the code because it's very cool very very fun cool stuff. yeah thank you steve gibson Okay, my friend. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Steve's on the Twitter, at SGGRC. He doesn't follow people, but you can at message him, and he reads those. Yep, I do. And uh, he responds, too. I do. Thanks, Steve. We'll talk again Thanks, next Steve. week on Security Now. Security Now. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little disappointed with the second-factor authentication on Google. Those passwords apparently never expire. Oh. And can be used over and over and over again on any oh. and any on any app you want. Wow! So it's up for you to revoke them. 
Yeah, or to forget. It says, you could forget this password. You'll never need it again. That's because there's more where that came from. <laughs> and all of which work on anything, anytime. So it's generating, basically generating new insecure passwords all the time. Does, is there a database where you can say this, I gave this password yeah, here? Yeah, you, it's you, up to you to maintain it. You have to say, okay, yeah. I gave this one to this app. I gave, but doesn't, so you can revoke it, but... Yeah. Uh, to me, it's it's not in any way enhancing my security, and nope. I understand why Google nothing you can't force people to support second factor authentication, so they have to do this. Yeah, wow. Uh, so I'm just not going to use it. I got the uh, you know I just don't see any reason to. I am using second factor where it works, where it's only in one place, and I yep. guess if you didn't have a lot of Googley stuff on your phone or whatever, but I have. Two or three Android devices. I have two or three iOS devices. Every not only do those need the this well the, the Google stuff doesn't, but if I'm using an app on the Google phones, mm -hmm. that does because they don't yeah. understand it. And every iOS does. Uh, many of my desktop apps do. So I'm I'm all the time. So I've generated dozens of them. Hmm. Matt Cuts uh, was tweeting me and uh, said, "No, they're good. They're good." <laughs> yeah well i mean they may be all he can do you know and then if you if you forget which one you gave to which app then you're really messed up no you don't have to enter it again it's no it's it, because you can use another one the next time ah oh okay there's an infinite number now of these new revocable revocable password. application specific passwords so you don't have to remember them because you just generate more which doesn't, it seems to me better to have a good, strong password that you use. Yeah, although if an app, if the app, the app would need to know the password. And if the app were compromised, right. then, then. It, oh, no, but wait a minute, Steve. The app, the password that I gave that app, that can be reused by the bad guy. Yeah. It, it doesn't change anything. The app is still getting a password that is not, that does not expire, is not revoked. Yeah. I would have to revoke it. So this is what I thought it was a one-time use password. I thought, oh, you use it on that app. Google sees it and says, okay, you can never use that one again. That would work, right? But I'm being yeah, told again and again that it's not revocable, that you have to revoke a, it. Yeah, it would be a huge, huge pain because you'd be consuming these big passwords constantly and, and no one would use it. So I, I guess I can see where they're where, – I can see the logic behind them having made them static and revocable – and the only real benefit to them being granular is that you can't if you mistrust an app that you gave you one revoke to, it. you haven't given it your grand master right. password. You've given it its own personal password right. or private, you know, its own unique password. And then you could say, oh, you, I don't trust you anymore. But that's assuming you know that it's untrustworthy. Yeah, it's there's no we're not. So there. so I give so let's hacker hacker calendar. I give it the one-time <laughs> password. Now, if Google said, okay, that's it, you used it, you can't use it again, everybody be happy. But no, Hacker has password that works on all Google stuff. Now, there are Forever. limitations, apparently. That password can't be used to change settings. So, so apparently, that password is not as capable. Oh, that's okay. So, I think that's the theory is, well, yeah, he's got a password, but all he can do is read your – it's a read-only password. But still, I don't like it. Yeah. So I'm going to have a strong password. And if I feel something's been compromised, I'll change it. Or I'll change it monthly. Isn't that better? Yeah. I. Th there is work 
underway, and there was mention of it, in fact, on Twit Sunday. Uh, I think maybe Ed referred to it, and I've been keeping an eye on it. I'm a member of the of the uh, group tracking this, and this is the I uh, can't think of the acronym. It's got a bad acronym. N N I S T I C or something, and the National Institute of Standards and Trust- Time. No, no, oh, no. Yeah, oh. it's, yeah, they're doing it, but okay. it's the Trusted Identities in Cyberspace Initiative. So it ends in TIC because <laughs> that's Trusted Identify- right. Identities in Cyberspace. Um, but it's a, you know, it's working towards the solution for this. And I mean, it, you know, frankly, it is by having a big standard that is standard that there is some hope for this kind of thing. So um, I, I may, that'll, that'll probably be where it comes from. So we'll be talking about that as it happens there. You know, there, it's going to be my massive committee. It's going to, it's going to take forever. So, you know, we can't wait for them. Steve, thank you. My pleasure. Take Talk care. Talk to you next week, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.